If there's any kiddos that want to go to children's church, this is a good time to escape. The rest of you are doomed to listen. We're in John's Gospel, chapter 7, and we're going to dip into chapter 8 as well. So. So, last time we looked at Jesus in the great temple in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. About, it's about six months before the Passover where Jesus will be uh, slain. So Jesus came to the temple uh, quietly, we talked about before, in the middle of the feast to kind of avoid, um, well, being slain early actually because they were hunting for him. But he started teaching under one of those massive porticos that was in Solomon's great temple, one of the ancient wonders of the ancient world there. And we saw last time, much of chapter 7 is Jesus interacting with and causing lots of animated discussion among the different groups that were there in attendance. So almost everybody in attendance was Jewish, most. Some were uh, Gentile converts. But they're all there to worship the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible. But in identifying these various groups, John calls the Jewish leadership the Jews. They're all Jewish, but he's calling them the Jews. When he talks, use that phrase, he's usually almost always talking about the leadership there. So um, that would be scribes, Pharisees, priests, people like that. And uh, he also mentions the crowd, which includes local people, but also pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire. The Feast of Tabernacles was probably the most well attended of the, all the, the three required feasts that Jews were supposed to go to. If you lived like 25 miles or more from Jerusalem, you didn't have to go, but people did. And they would make pilgrimage from all over the Roman Empire to go. So, um, so, there, so there's those people, the crowd, which is made up of all of them, rarely getting a chance to visit the great temple, but happy to be there. And then he mentions in verse 25 of chapter 7, some of the people in Jerusalem, like those are the locals who have more general information about recent events than the travelers coming from out of town. So um, they're all sort of there. The last thing we have from Jesus on that day, the last thing he says that's recorded is in verse 33. And Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me for where I am, you cannot come. So that's verse 33 and 34. That's, a, that's meant to create a lot of thought about wh what he's talking about there. But he's warning them. He's saying, I'm not going to be here all the time. I'm, I'm going back to my father. So clearly there he's speaking about his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, which is not that far away. So if it was like, here we are in December, it'd be like in June, that's coming. You know, all of that is that, is that close. So the religious leaders do want to arrest him. They've wanted to kill him for some time, but it hasn't worked out. As John says in verse 30, no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come, which means providentially God was arranging things so that they couldn't get a hold of him yet. And that day, um, the, the day we're talking about here ended, but starting in verse 37, the setting is the last day of the feast, what John calls the great day. So it was designed to be a special end for all of the pilgrims with special ceremonies related to the pilgrims as well. So at this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a week long. Every day, um, 
with crowds watching and following, one of the priests would go down out of the temple area to the pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher and he would fill it with water and then he would start this procession back to the inside the temple and there'd be trumpets blaring and people singing Hosanna and all kinds of stuff. It was kind of an exciting moment and he would, every day he would do that. But on the last day, which is the day we're on now, um, well, when he got there, he would go around the altar, I should say that, and then pour the water into this sort of tunnel thing, little tube that would go and surround the altar. But on the seventh day, he went around the altar seven times. So it was just made it more significant. It was like a big deal, and the people would be doing it. And when he poured the water each day, he would say, or the priests that were present would chant with him, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which is, with joy you will draw water from the springs of salvation. And scholars, it doesn't tell us why they use that. Some, some people believe it's a recognition of the provision of water that God provided for the Jews in the wilderness, which I think is probably the case. Other people say, well, this is a harvest festival, so it's, it's uh, praising God and thanking him for the rains that are, that are allowed all these crops to grow while they're harvesting them, you know. So we have to guess at the reason, but that's what they did. And, um, but on that seventh day, he would circle seven times around that altar. And the priest would, on the seventh day, they would chant Psalm 118, 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. That would be the chant that was going on while they were doing that on the seventh day. So it was at this time that when the water was poured out and the chanting of the prayer for salvation, it's probably then when Jesus stands up or comes to a prominent place and calls out. So verse 37, if anyone is thirsty, get the water connection, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's kind of familiar because if you read John chapter 4, if you were here with us when we studied that, that the woman at the well chapter, remember that lady, the woman at the well? She, um, uh, she was drawing water for Jesus and he tells her, I can give you living water. Do you remember that? And in chapter 4 verse 14, he tells her, he says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So what kind of thirst was he talking about there? You know, she was thinking, slaking your thirst, but he's talking about a thirst for God, a thirst for meaning, a thirst for the answers to all the big questions there are in life, right? I was one of those people, long before I was a Christian, I, I was a thirsty person. I wanted to know what it was all about, which was a good place to be, actually, because you're really looking. You know, you're trying to say, what's the explanation for the world I live in? Why am I the way I am? Why, why is everything the way it is? Why am I here? Is there any significance to being here? What happens when I die? Can I know who God is? Does he care about me? Or uh, why does he seem distant from me? Uh, what is the truth of the world? A, th a thirst for answers to all of those kinds of questions. So the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, our creator sent the Son into the world specifically so he would have the answer to all of those questions, right? and more as the true purpose of his coming is revealed here in these scriptures. So in John's gospel, 
Our problem has already been made clear way back in chapter 3, verse 19, where it says, men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. That's the human condition. So our problem is us. Man is lost and he's in rebellion against God. That's his problem. And that's why things are the way they are. That's why there's so much suffering and pain in the world. That's why it never seems to get better. So God sent his son to save us from this darkness that is in us and around us. So I'm going to go all the way back to John 3:16, the most famous verse in the Bible probably, and read that section following that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light. That's 319. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So if you want to get into that deep, Go to YouTube and Act in Faith Bible Church and find that sermon. <laughs> explain that all the way through there. But because we exist in spiritual darkness, light is used to describe the Savior and what he brings, okay? And so is water. So there's a lot of metaphorical ideas that are used to describe the spiritual reality of who Christ is. So the Savior quenches our thirst. He satisfies our soul. He cleanses us. So look again at Jesus' declaration in verse 37, back in chapter 7 here. And notice how careful Jesus is. He calls on people to come to him and drink. So we talked before when Jesus is speaking how he uses the word come and believe as synonyms. So if you, because you can, people can misunderstand believe, right? Say, oh, I believe it. But that's not what the Bible means by believe. It means come. So Jesus often pairs them together. Believe in him and come to him, right? That's very common. Like in chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Come and believe, right? So to believe is to come. It's not just, oh, I think that's true. It's he is true. He is the Savior, and I come to him as my Savior and Lord. I worship him. I'm his, I belong to him. He's my bread now, he's my drink. So this invitation Jesus gives on the last day of the feast uses the water metaphor again, which everyone was thinking about because of the golden pitcher and the water that they came and poured around the thing, so that was what was in everybody's mind. And he uses it um, as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and transforming us. So verse 39, this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so the Spirit comes at Pentecost again, six months later and a couple more months, <laughs> but then that's when that's going to happen. So that's coming too, but uh, he's going to come, but that's after the resurrection of Jesus. He's just making the promise of it now. 
If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And if you believe, rivers of living water will come forth from you, right? So the water metaphor in our text today is, a, is that a relationship with Jesus, putting your faith in him, creates within you a fountain, a fountain of life. And as you grow in him, and as you live for him, it, it spills over and touches other people's lives. That's the whole idea there. So it's a lovely visual way to think about how God transforms the heart to become useful to him and a blessing to other people. That happens to every true believer in Christ. Okay now at verse 40 we start to see the reactions right. He gets up in the middle of their feast and he says this bold incredible proclamation pointing at himself as the source of light right. So um, how how are they going to react to that? Well you got the people in the crowd and the authorities they're all there right. So first we see um, the speculation about Jesus being the Messiah or the prophet as Moses had predicted the prophet. So Moses said a prophet like me would come. So a prophet like Moses is different than a prophet because the Old Testament makes really clear that Moses had a special relationship with God that was different than your average prophet. Moses was the lawgiver. Moses was the leader of the people. Prophets just gave messages from God. Moses did that too, but he was all these other things. And there's going to become someone like him that can change the law, that can develop the law, that can add to the law, that can change the times. Like Jesus declared all foods clean. He changed the law, right? That's why you can eat a ham sandwich today if you want to. Okay, so um, he, so that, that's a special person. And typically they believe that that was going to be the Messiah. Although in the first century there were views that somebody else, that might be another person kind of working with the Messiah or coming around the time of the Messiah or something like that. But, um, but Moses talked about this prophet like me. So it would be somebody that receives direct communication from God. So verse 40, some of the people therefore when they heard these words were saying, this is certainly the prophet. So some people were like, wow. I mean Jesus had been teaching and people were already blessed by it but now he gets up and makes this incredible thing. He's the light of the world. Wow, he must be the prophet some people are saying, right? Others were saying, this is the Christ. See, that's the, where you get maybe two different ideas there. So, um, still others were saying, verse 41, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? So, this is the prophet. Well, I think he's the Christ. Yeah, but the Christ doesn't come from Galilee. And this guy, Jesus, he's Jesus of Nazareth, right? So, he's from Galilee. That's not where the Messiah comes from. So, um, so they're, well, that's a good point. You know, so they're discussing that. They're talking about all that. Verse 42, they show that they have a clear knowledge of Micah chapter 5 where the prophecy is given about where the Messiah is going to come from. Where's he going to come from? Bethlehem, yeah. (laughs) So verse 42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was, that little tiny village? That's exactly right. Exactly right. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. That's why he's called the Jesus of Nazareth or the Nazarene. So people kind of assumed he was born there, but we know that he was born in Bethlehem. That's right. Because of the census that year. It had all the families go back to their original home. So all these questions the crowd is asking and debating. So verse 43, a division occurred in the crowd because of him. So like in any group of people, I think it's this, I think it's that. What do you think? So it starts this big discussion. Could Jesus be the Messiah? And as in most situations, opinions were all over the place. So there were some present there who were sure that Jesus had gone too far. Now guess who those people are? (laughs) 
That's right. So he's claiming for himself honors that really belong to God alone, right? He's made himself the focus of his teaching. He's not saying this is about God. He's saying, I am the light of the world, right? So he's offering himself as the object. I'm the one that can sate your thirst. I can do all of that. So as we come to verse 44, it's the Pharisees that John seems to have in mind. Um, Some of them wanted to seize him, but nobody laid hands on him, it says. Some of them wanted to seize him, but nobody laid hands on him. Now last time we talked about them wanting to arrest him. Something we aren't told what got in the way. So back up to verse 30. They were seeking to seize him and no man laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come, right? Never told us why, but in God's timing, they didn't get a hold of him. This time we find out why Jesus didn't get arrested after he went up there and said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink, right? So why didn't they arrest him then if he's this blaspheming like that, claiming to be the source of uh, satisfying all of your needs, like water, you know, which is God's prerogative. So this is the reason. The temple police officers assigned to make arrest if Jesus showed up again, and he did show up again, they loved what he was saying. They thought, wow, this is really cool. So they were part of the crowd that was like amazed by him. Okay, so uh, verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they, the chief priests and the Pharisees, said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke the way this man speaks. So they're just kind of blown away by Jesus, right? So it's nothing like having your muscle, you know, your enforcers not willing to do their job because they're captivated by your target, right? Well, I don't want to arrest him. He's he's pretty wonderful. It was like that kind of a thing. So so these lawmen are are genuinely impressed by Jesus. They find him very compelling. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. In all of their experience, and all of their understanding, they'd never heard anybody like that. Can I tell you something? That was true 2,000 years ago. It's still true. It's still true. Jesus has never been rivaled. He stands absolutely alone among all the prophets, preachers, teachers of the world. Far above. So many people have claimed to be a Messiah or a living prophet or the enlightened one, but they don't even begin to compare with him. And these probably rather thuggish police officers in this particular case are used to being pretty firm with people. They think he's amazing. And they they say nobody's ever spoken like this. Now, you know, we've got a few of those people in modern times that claim to be somebody super special and Messiah figures and all that kind of stuff. They're usually lunatics, right? I mean, that, you think of Jim Jones and Town. If you're an older person, you can think of that. Or David Koresh and the cult leader, you know, down there at Waco, Texas and all of that. I think the only current person that I can think of that ha- actually has true historic ties to world religions or something like that that would be around today that people might go to or think about would be His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet. <laughs> Uh, he's the only one I could think of. Now, have you ever seen him? He's this cute little old man, 88 years old now, and movie stars love him, and celebrities love him, which should tell you something right there. But uh, recently, he did something so gross, I won't tell you what it was, but it kind of shocked the world, so um, I'll let you look that up on your own. But he's the perfect guru for modern people, modern elites especially, f- fabulous people. 
he only speaks soft truths, right? And uh, always dodges controversy, never confronts anybody about anything. His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet said this, this is his definition, this is why he came into the world, okay? This is his purpose for being. Quote, my religion is very simple. My religion is kindness. Okay. <laughs> now, the Dalai Lama is considered a living Buddha of compassion, a reincarnation of a famous Buddha who refused to go into nirvana so that he could bring the world order or peace or something, you know, help mankind. So that, he's a reincarnation of that, that Buddha is what they believe about him. Does he really need all of these lavish titles and claims of that religion just to tell us to be kind? Did the, the, the Buddha really have to reincarnate and miss nirvana just to say, be kind, be kind. Your mother told you to be kind. You don't really need that, right? You don't need a special reincarnation to know you should be kind. How different is Jesus who defines compassion in his being and he tells you, Jesus does, why you're not kind. When you blow it, the Bible tells you why. The Dalai Lama doesn't tell you that. He just smiles and says, be kind. <laughs> Jesus also loves you so much, he paid the penalty for your very real sins and your great failures. He tells the whole truth. Jesus exposes your darkness and he still loves you so much he carried your sins to the cross. <coughs> he carried the Dalai Lama's sins too if he would repent and believe. So Jesus is the real solution to human problems and he doesn't deal in platitudes. Have you noticed that? Does Jesus think you should be kind? Of course. Is that, is, would he say that's the sum of religion? No, he'd say the world's a disaster, you're a sinner, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. God loves you despite all of that and I've come to save you and bring you to heaven. That's way better than being kind. I mean, there's just nobody like Jesus. He's so amazing. There's nobody like Jesus today. There was no one like Jesus before he came nor since he's come. He's in a class by himself completely all together. So the officers say, no man has ever spoken the way this man does. So the Pharisees push back right away, verse 47. The Pharisees answered, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. You guys are falling for the same stuff this accursed crowd is falling for. The old shtick. Jesus is some kind of a trickster. He's a fly-by-night guy, he's a huckster. And the lowlifes who don't know the law, they follow that stuff, they buy that, they eat that up. Well, we know, we know. So you're acting like them. So you wanna be with the accursed crowd, huh? Do you wanna be with them or your educated, wise leaders? Which do you want? No Pharisees or theologians or leaders believe in Jesus, you numbskulls. That's my, that's my translation of what they're saying. So then, while they're at this meeting with the police officers and the leaders of Israel, verse 50 begins with a really interesting word. It's a name. 
Nicodemus. Nicodemus. The theologian who came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 and told Jesus, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Right? Remember that? He's in the room. Jesus told him, you need to be born again. Nicodemus is a leading theologian. He either believes right in this moment or he's open to believe. We don't know where he was, but he's not against Jesus. He can see Jesus' worth without prejudice. He can see why the police officers would be amazed by him and delighting in what he said and interested and saying no man speaks like this. So Nicodemus speaks up, verse 51. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing. Does it? That's almost brave. Almost. He won't speak up for Jesus, but he will speak up for due process, which is good. For fair treatment. And how does he get treated? They sneer at him. Verse 52, they answered him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now, there were prophets out of Galilee. Jonah, the guy that had to get swallowed before he preached. <laughs> That'd be horrible being swallowed before you have to preach, but it worked in his case. He was from Galilee. In fact, he was from a town that was just a little bit north of, Na little bit north of Naz Nazareth there. So, um, he was from Galilee. But anyway, it's possible though when they say... Um, talking about prophets here, that they're talking about the prophet, you know, um, that we talked about with John. And it's mentioned in John several times, the prophet, like we just saw. So, but most manuscripts of, that we have, ancient Greek manuscripts of this passage, don't have a definite article. That's like the word the, which in Greek is just an, an O <laughs> with a little thing on it. So, um, most of them don't have it. So, it's probably a prophet, see that no prophet arises, not the prophet or anything like that. But anyway, so um, this back to this prophet like Moses kind of character. So they're probably just saying no prophet. Anyway, their arguments are really weak, whichever it is they're using, whether it's the prophet or a prophet. Um, they're not making a very good case here because they don't have any intention of giving Jesus a fair hearing. So that has nothing to do with it. What Nicodemus said and their response to it doesn't, it doesn't mesh at all. Okay. Um, that's where we are. They want Jesus destroyed. Nicodemus isn't strong enough yet or sure enough yet to risk openly supporting Jesus. That's kind of how this section ends. All right. Now, I want you to turn the page and go to chapter 8, verse 12, because that's where this picks up, what Jesus said that day. So right away we find the Pharisees ready to take Jesus on. So now they're confronting him. They're going for him to best him. So maybe Nicodemus' words about hearing Jesus before condemning him had some play because they're actually are going to go confront him. They think they can take him on, right? They can make him look foolish or something. But in chapter 8 verse 12, it continues with Jesus speaking after we had our inside look at the deliberations among the Jewish leadership and it might be later in the day in fact it might be evening because we have records historical records that during the Feast of Tabernacles in the court of the women now the court of the women wasn't for women alone it's just it meant that uh, women could only go that far 
into the temple area. There was a court of men beyond the court of women and then the court of the priests inside of that. So it's the big open area where there's a lot of people are allowed. So um, it's, it, that's where they are. They would set up this great big menorah. In fact, they've been setting up big menorahs all over the world recently. It's kind of support of Israel, but it, w- it was like that. It was a big one. It was those oil-powered lamp, you know, with seven candlesticks. And they would light that uh, in the evening during the Feast of Tabernacles. And what was that a reminder of? Well, the, the, the Lord's in the pillar of fire that led the people in the wilderness, right? So um, all of these things have certain symbolic kinds of meanings. It was a vivid reminder that over the tabernacle in ancient times, the, this pillar of fire by night and cloud by day had stood and it's bringing that memory to life. It's the perfect place for Jesus to stand up in verse 12 and say, I am the light of the world. So this is his next statement. So first, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. And now he's saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's two big ones on the same day. So if one was in the morning or afternoon, or early morning, then that one would be at night. Um, He's doing it again. Now, also, this statement in verse 12 of chapter 8 is the second of John's John, John does everything in sevens and there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Just like in the book of Revelation, he has seven beatitudes, blessed are. In, in the Gospel of John, there's seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am something, right? And uh, always great significance. And this is the second one. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. The first one was in chapter 6, verse 35. We talked about it not long ago. I am the bread of life. That was the first one. This is the second one. It's really interesting, these chapters, like, like the feast itself, all seem to recall some portion, um, in some sense, the, how God provided the people of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. Like, I am the bread of life. What does that remind you of, right? Well, the whole conversation that follows in chapter 6 is about manna, right? That, so that recalls that. Chapter 7 alludes to the water, So remember when Moses struck the rock and the water poured out and took care of everybody? And um, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. It's, in fact, the New Testament in Corinthians, it says Jesus is the rock, you know. So here in chapter 8, it's the light that hung over the tabernacle in ancient times uh, and, and later the temple, this pillar of fire that stood up over where the Holy of Holies was. I am the light of the world. So it's a very astonishing claim for Jesus to say, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if true, that would be the greatest news possible to a world that is laden down with every kind of evil. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Look, all of human history is a record of darkness. Superstition, conquest, oppression, cruelty, foolishness, perversion, corruption, deceit, covetousness, cheating, vindictiveness, jealousy, infidelity, pride, anger, all the sins of mankind all through history appear in abundance. Human wickedness is ever-present and it knows no boundaries because we are in darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world, he says. 
And Jesus as the true light is one of the very first things John says about him in John chapter 1. Right after he says he's God, it says he's the true light in chapter 1. That's how this gospel introduces him. And of course in chapter 3 we're told this is the judgment that light has come into the world, right? But men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds would be exposed. Now here in John chapter 8, Jesus proclaims this publicly. So in John chapter 3, that's Nicodemus and Jesus talking. But now he's saying it publicly. He's the light of the world. That idea, light of the world, suggests all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, William MacDonald puts it this way. He said, the world is in darkness, the darkness of sin, ignorance, and aimlessness. The light of the world is Jesus. Apart from him, there is no deliverance from the blackness of sin. Apart from him, there is no guidance along the way of life. No knowledge as to the real meaning of life and the issues of eternity. And he's exactly right there. And I would add to that hope. Apart from him, hope is a baseless wish. You look back on the 20th century and all the horror of it, two great world wars, um, you know, massive starvation, all kinds of things going on. But there was this sense after World War II that, you know, we're defeating evil here. We're, we're, we're building this democratic world, this free world, and it's going to go forward, and economies are going to grow, and all this scientific knowledge and innovation is going to make life so much easier. You know, Walt Disney first started building that little, that little future world thing. That pe They've torn that down. They, but <laughs> They used to go there and you see what life was going to be like, you know, in the, a century from now and all the cool technology and everybody would have an abundance. And, or, or Star Trek, you go to that Star Trek world and oh, we don't need money, everybody has everything they want and that kind of a thing, you know, it's everything's great and all that kind of stuff. It's really interesting, I don't watch modern, modern Star Trek shows, but the, the idea is that the Federation is all corrupt and dark and there's all these evil things going on. There you go. <laughs> there you go. So in, in the 1960s we were, we're going to go this way. And in the our time in the two, 21st century, we're like, everything's corrupt. It's going to be corrupt 22,000 years from now and hundreds of years from now in the Star Trek world too. It, humans are corrupt, it, it, which is true that humans are corrupt. So actually there's a good side to that. But this hope, this hope of a better world was always there. Peace and plenty. We would all hold cans of Coke on a mountain and sing in perfect <laughs> harmony. That, that was going to happen to us, right? It's not man's way though. It, it's, it's not man's way. It's man's dream. It's a dream. Only a dream. We long for peace and love. That's what the whole hippie thing was about. But it eludes us. We stumble in darkness. We stumble. And the horizon does not look brighter. You know, they have these giant meetings with all these super world elite billionaires and all these people come and these big conferences and they start planning what they're going to do with the world. You know, that's a real thing. Now I'm not a conspiracy person at all, but these people really do want to tell us what to, how we're going to live, you know. And they don't see plenty ahead. Plenty. They see plenty of trouble. I mean, they're going to cause plenty of trouble. But it's like they're preparing for scarcity <coughs> and submission to them. That's kind of what their goal is. So, you know, we were moving through the 20th century. Freedom, abundance, technology, all these wonderful things. They're like scarcity, getting rid of humans, <laughs> you know, bringing things down, making things so expensive you can't have it. N you won't own anything. They even say that. You won't own anything, but we'll provide everything for you that you need. Oh, 
Thanks. So it seems like that that's the way things are going. Why do we blow it? The, our dreams are so beautiful. You know, these hopes are so beautiful. The Federation is such a great idea. All these planets working together and helping each other and nobody needs money and all that kind of stuff. How come we fall from that? How, how come we blow it? Men love darkness rather than the light. That's why. Because their deeds are evil. When given the choice, we don't want light. We don't want it because the light includes righteousness and righteousness does not interest anybody. That God became a man in Jesus of Nazareth does answer all the big questions that we have. It meets every true human need. True human need. And he gives the only hope possible to us in our wretchedness, in our wretched condition. He brings reconciliation with God. He will bring a perfect kingdom. That's what's coming. And to be in Jesus means to be found when you're lost. It means to be enlightened with truth. When you're in darkness, it means to be delivered from what we all face, which is the doom of death. And all he asks is that we follow him. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So now we've talked about those two words, believe and come. And now he's adding another word here. Those two words, believe and come, mean the same thing. They're used by Jesus as synonyms. If you believe, you're coming to him. Now he uses the word follow. So to believe in Jesus as God in human flesh, it is a joy to be his servant, to follow him. Because no matter what happens, we have the light with us. And we have the spirit in us, the water that fountains up, you know, bubbles up. We know that God loves us in Christ. We know it because of him. So we're secure. So come, follow, and you will no longer walk in darkness. Lost, wandering, speculating about everything, hoping this, wondering if that's going to happen. You will have the light of life and the promise sealed in blood is eternal life in him. So, when he says this wonderful thing, the Pharisees, their hearts are so touched by Jesus' words, they tell Jesus they just want to hear more. No, no, that's not what happened. They want to expose him to the crowd to, to best him, so they attack him on the fact that he's made this astounding claim. So verse 13, the Pharisees said, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Anybody can say I'm the light of the world. That's what that means. You know, you're just testifying about yourself. Oh, you're the light of the world. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Anybody could say that. Of course, Jesus isn't some loon <laughs> with delusions of grandeur, right? The miracles were undeniable. That's why Nicodemus in chapter 3 said, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's the logical conclusion. The signs were extraordinary witnesses to him. That's a witness, right? But they're saying this is an unsupported claim. You're, you're, you are witnessing to yourself. And they say that means it's not true. Now obviously, just because there's one witness doesn't mean something is not true, right? 
if I'm the only witness to a murder that actually happened and I was actually there and nobody else saw it, I'm still a witness to it. It's still true. My testimony is still true, right? It's like, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. If I tell you I was born in Virginia, for example, you can't say I wasn't because only I say I was born in Virginia. That's, that's just kind of silly because I know I was. <laughs> So it's true, if you, know, if you know something is true, then it, it is true whether other people believe it or not, right? So Jesus explains it just that way in verse 14. Jesus answered and said, if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know. I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I, where I came from or where I'm going. So he's saying, I know myself and I know where I came from and who sent me and I'm going back there. I know it and you guys don't know anything about it. You never looked up my birth certificate to see where I was born. <laughs> you don't know anything about it. You have to know the facts to make a determination. And he's saying, you guys don't have any facts about who I am or what I know. So I know you don't know anything about it. So why are you even saying that? Verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. Your knowledge is extremely limited, he's saying, but truth is beyond what your limited knowledge has. How can they know? if he's from the Father and going back to the Father. How can they know that since they, don't, they can't see into that spiritual realm at all? They don't know where Jesus comes from. So he goes on. There's another witness, verse 16. Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, talking about the law of Moses, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So here's Jesus again affirming his union with the Father, his oneness with the Father. The Father testifies about me. The law of Moses says two witnesses can't be, uh, can establish a fact. He says, so I'm testifying, the Father's testifying. So just because you guys are spiritually dull doesn't mean I'm not the light of the world. Because I'm, I know it's true and the Father knows it's true. The Father's the other witness. And here now they ask a really perceptive question. Here's a Here's a good shot from the Pharisees. They're not dummies. Verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? We need a witness we can see. Where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So here again, that's a pretty amazing statement. It, it, it's kind of like the statement Jesus makes at the Last Supper. It's actually quite similar. You guys all know the thing where um, Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father. You know that? We're going to get there someday. It's in John's Gospel. And what, did, what did Jesus say to Philip? He said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That doesn't mean Jesus is identical with the Father. It means he's a, he is God. He's from God. And you won't, get, you won't get more of God than seeing Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus because he is God in human flesh. So the, the Son isn't less God than the Father. And the Father isn't more God than the Son. So here in chapter 8, Jesus is saying for a human to know the Father, he needs to know the Son. Because the Father is invisible to human beings. But the Son is visible. And if you want to know the Father, you can see the Son. 
These Pharisees, he says, he says, you don't know me because you don't know the Father. If you really knew the Father and had a relationship with him, you would know who I am. That's what he's saying. So their view of, their view of Jesus was so prejudicial. It, it's so far off, they can't know the Father. And so they can't know the Son. They're speaking from ignorance. They don't know him. They don't investigate it either or spend time with him. You know what they should do is say, Jesus, let us spend some days with you and really hear from you and find out what this is all about. They don't do that because he's, he's called them actors a long time ago. They're hypocrites. They hate him. They hate him because he exposed their sin. Now Nicodemus did do that. He went to Jesus and sat down with him because he could see that the Father was bearing him witness through the signs that Jesus did. No man could do these things unless he was sent from God. They won't do that though. Their minds are made up. They hate him. He has to die. That's where they are. So they're staking their eternal destiny on not even trying to get to know him. Not even being open to getting to know him. And if he is who he says he is, the light of the world, then they are condemning themselves based on willful ignorance. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that mistake. So the section ends like this, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. It's there again. Why didn't they grab him? His hour had not yet come. So God prevented it. Plus the police officers are like, well, we kind of like them. <laughs> well, verse 20 is a natural break, but Jesus isn't done talking yet. There's a lot more to go here, not by a long shot. So we'd better stop here. What about the part you skipped over? Oh, that. We have to do that, huh? Well, how about next Sunday we talk about that part? And I can promise you this. It will be the most unusual sermon you've ever heard here. I promise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your son who among all men of the earth stands high above them all, infinitely so. We pray that all who haven't come to him won't dismiss him, but that they will seek the truth because that's the right thing to do. We ask you to awaken every heart to believe and to come and to follow your son. In his name we pray, amen.